It's Friday the 13th, Stockholm Open is about to start, and this is the Grey Zone. Hey, Zach. Spooky. Spooky, spooky. Speaking of spooky, I got one thing to clear up before we start. Uh, A couple fact checks just from past episodes. Um, Shit. Check my notes. Uh, Everything we've ever said. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Uh, That was was quick. Cleared it up. Tidy that up. Perfect. (laughs) Listen, I wanted to start, this may be a little too uh, dense or a little too too heavy to get into right off the start, but uh, at the end of the day, I think we're in the business of skill development, and I don't think that's the only thing that we should talk about or the only thing we should focus on, but uh, my buddy Magnus sent me this a while back, and this is a journal article um, concerning soccer and uh, you know the effectiveness of different training methods in soccer, and I thought it'd be interesting to just go through really briefly um since i am in academia supposedly doing a master's you're supposed to be able to like communicate uh communicate research and so i'm going to do my best at at communicating what they found and and the way they did things and then we can talk about it real quick so essentially the goal here was to compare you know what's referred to as non-linear pedagogy um to what they call deliberate practice although i have some issue with the way they define deliberate practice and essentially what they did is they had they wanted to look at passing skill in soccer and so they had a control group they had what they call a practice group and a play group and the practice group um basically did sort of standard what you'd think of as closed uh practicing drills practicing Mm -hmm. passing in between cones and there were little uh contests like how many passes can you make in a minute or who can make the most in a row or those sorts of things um but pretty typical closed stuff um there might have been some movement involved um but that was it and then the play group uh did a bunch of different game-like exercises so teams and then uh you know if you make three passes in a row you get a point or who can uh make the most passes or can you pass to this person and then to that person and they did they had various constraints they made the field smaller or bigger or they regulated how many times you could touch the ball there were all sorts of different manipulations that they did um but the instruction was always the same the instruction was always uh, i have it here play over through or around your opponent maintain ball possession as a team and prevent the opponent from winning the ball. So that was sort of always the, the the core instruction that they were given. Whereas in the practice group, they were given specific technical feedback and technical uh, prompts and, and information from the, from the coaches. And this, this took place. I'm just checking over five weeks. And these were all players from the same, they're all roughly the same level. They were all from the same team and team or teams at this club. And so they did 30 minutes at the start of their practice was this sort of scientific practice with these coaches. And then they went back to their normal team practice for the rest of the session. And they did that for five weeks and they did a good job controlling for other things, like making sure the coaches were equally qualified and they did things the right way and all that. So it was a very thorough um, study. And so what they found, and I should say they tested passing with this test that the German sort of soccer federation has, where basically there's two walls and you have to make as uh, tw- 12 passes as fast as possible alternately against the two walls. So you pass it against one wall, it bounces back to you, and then you pass it onto the other wall, and you just kind of keep turning around and passing the ball back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is apparently is some standardized test that the German Federation does. And okay. so this is their this is their metric. Um, and and so then when the results come in, I won't read you the numbers, and I won't even read directly from the from the text. But basically, what they found was that the um, both groups improved. Uh, you know, the control group stayed the same, but the play group and the practice group, both groups improved. Um, 
And what they sort of use as their big argument, because they tested before the five weeks, after the five weeks, and then they tested five weeks later as a sort of retention test. Mm-hmm. And what they five is that the, what they find is that the play group retained its improvements much better. So I'll go very quickly. The play group started at 31 seconds, plus or minus some standard deviation, and down to 29 seconds. They stayed at 29 seconds. The practice group started at around 31 seconds, went down to 27 and a bit, almost 28 seconds, Mm -hmm. and then went up again to 29.4. So the practice group actually had a slightly bigger improvement from pre to post-testing. But then it didn't, it wasn't retained. Right. Right. And so at the, at the end of the retention, which was, I think, as I said, five weeks later, then the play group was better than the practice group. And so they use this as, you know, the argument that they make is that, you know, there's, there's, there's validity or there's benefit to this nonlinear pedagogy, even with pure technical skills, because the test is purely technical. There's no perception, no decision-making. It's just about your, your, your passing ability. And the argument they make is like, even in when playing small-sided games and using constraints and manipulations, but keeping things open, essentially, although that's not the word they use, the argument they make is that you can still develop technical skills. Mm -hmm. I'll stop here. Do you have any thoughts right off the bat? Yeah, uh, my uh, initial thought is it'd be interesting to do a a group that did half practice, half play, and to see what the the benefits of that would have been over the five-week span. But then when you're outlining to the, the sort of the standardized test is like, would that actually be the most impactful way to measure if the skills are being learned or retained? And this is where you or I not being Scottish, Scottish, <laughs> one of us, Scottish, you or I not being soccer guys, it'd be tough for us to, to really weigh in on that. But overall, it's interesting because I think that goes hand in hand with sort of how we view technical development in tennis, where we seem to be or most gold standard nations tend to go more on the the play approach as opposed to the the hard line practice approach. Um, but we've talked about it at length that like, there's lots of times that we'll do both. So that's sort of like my my initial thoughts on it. What are your initial thoughts? Yeah, I'll admit um, because my my colleague Magnus and I have gotten into various discussions and we've talked about them on the podcast as well. Um, I admit that I I'm I'm always I'm a little skeptical of the of the people of let's call them. Um, I don't know, let's call them games-based, you know, absolutionists, or let's call them, that's not the right word at all, but let's let's call them, uh, you know, the the people who believe that a games-based approach or a nonlinear pedagogy will solve all your problems. Um, And and I think part of maybe my issue with this is simply that a lot of this research comes out of the world of soccer, and soccer is far less technical than tennis. Um, I don't want to say it's more perceptual, because there's a whole lot of perception and decision-making going on in tennis, but I think it's definitely less technical soccer. Um, and so, so I admit that when I was looking at reading it, I was a little skeptical. And the first thing that I was skeptical of is that there was no real mechanism provided for why they would have gotten better at a purely yeah. technical passing test. Right. right. Cause on the surface of it, it doesn't kind of make sense. If you had said, okay, they got better at passing in a game situation. And once they went, once they went and played, played a game, I would go, yeah, that makes perfect sense. The practice yep. was, was representative of the game, but the test is so purely closed and mm-hmm. technical just passing against a wall yeah um that that was the first thing that made me skeptical it's like well there's no there's no explanation for why this works and and yeah. that left me feeling a little confused but then when i when i dug into the numbers as i say that's when i that's when it started to make more sense to me because you know one of the things that we that i think that we know or that we talk about is that um 
you know, training in an open approach with perception and decision-making is more likely to make things uh, uh, stick in a mm-hmm. sense, because it is more realistic mm-hmm. to the game. And that's yep. when I started to think, okay, then it makes sense that that would be the intervention that has the best effects on retention. Yeah. But at the same time, like I said, the practice group practicing in more a closed setting did make a bigger improvement at the initial testing. It just didn't last. Right. Right. And so, I'm sorry, guys. No, I, I, and so I just think there's, I think, as you said, there's many more studies that you can do and more research that, that needs to go into this. But I think as always, it's not so much a question of, of, of A or B, but it's about when do I use A and when do I use B? For sure. And that's, and that's always been my approach. And now we're taking it back into tennis and skill development, but that's always been my philosophy is like, there is absolutely a time for closed, you know, closed drilling. Basket feeding, hand feeding. There's lots of times when I'm more than happy to close things down to initially develop that skill if there if it's really new, right? And if it really is at a level that they cannot do it, right? And then eventually, then you go and open things up and you do it systematically and you add in a little bit of perception, a little bit of decision making. You keep it black and white at first, and you then you you progress it. Um, and I think that's a. a that's the discussion to have or the, or the way to be thinking is, okay, when do I use this approach? When do I use that approach? Because I think if you do drill exclusively closed, then of course it, it never transfers as much as you'd like into the game situation. Cause they haven't, they haven't linked it to the perception of the decision-making, but conversely, mm-hmm. um, you know, there is, there is value in training at close because you get the repetitions. They get to feel what's going on, what's working, what's not working. Um, and they get to to get some stability in it before they start to to experiment with with other uh, other techniques. Yeah. So I feel like it's interesting that you and I both kind of came to the same conclusion that the the standardized tests they used didn't seem to be the most applicable to to judging, I guess, the validity of how much a player improved or, or didn't improve. Where it's had had they done some sort of test that was directly related to like when the players are competing and there was something they charted when the players competed, I'd be much more inclined to be like, Oh, this data is impactful. But Um, I think the test they chose was relevant for what they were trying to measure. They wanted to measure your ability to improve at a purely technical skill. And that's what they chose. Okay. We don't know if it's going to transfer to the, to the actual soccer game, but but then why would they do it? Like, why would they, why would they have that as a measure if it wasn't direct, like a direct correlation to their athletes winning or being more successful when they were competing? And now we'd have question. to ask them that, right? <laughs> but um, that sort of segues to, I mean, you, and then we're both in the same train of thought. Where, uh, closing things up is can be very impactful as a coach, but obviously opening things up can also be impactful. And, and when you were chatting about it, I was thinking about the strongest coaches that I've seen that sort of segue between doing things that are opened or closed um, tend to be really, really strong at associating a why all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of, in any sport, there's coaches who will develop closed skills, but it's it's not always directly related to like the why of how, how that skill is going to help an athlete um, when they compete. Now, I think the why is generally much easier to, to associate when something is very open or more in the the play thing because like the why is like well we're trying to win points mm-hmm. um but I, I thought i would throw, throw that out there that it's like even in closed training uh, closely associating the why i think is really really important 
Um, yeah. You mentioned and, thing. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I'll just jump in. But like, you know, one of the words, I guess there's maybe two words that I overuse and one is structure and the other is systematic. But I, I think like when you talk about the why, I think the best skill developers are very systematic about the way they go about doing things, right? And so it's this idea of, uh, to, I guess it's tying into different different why than the, the way you were using the word why, but like to understand I'm going to progress or I'm going to change the drill to this for this reason. Because I am observing this, I am changing this. Because I am observing this, I am changing this. Because coaching, we've talked about this before, I think, but like coaching is also an open skill, right? Okay. As a coach, you're perceiving, deciding, and executing. And so and so I think the best skill developers are perceiving certain things in their athletes and then deciding, okay, here's how I'm going to change this. Here's how I'm going to change this based not only on the theory and a sort of methodology, but also on what's going on in front of them. Um, because I think like, you know, unless we want to discount all that research, but I don't think it's, I don't think it, it it makes sense. We know from all that myelination stuff and, yeah. and, and practice stuff that like repeating something enough leads to improvements in the, in the, in the motor pattern, in the, in the yeah. neural pathway. Right. Yeah. And if you are, if you go open too soon or at a stage when the skill is not stable mm-hmm. and then they're doing a whole bunch of different motor patterns, some of which are inefficient or at the wrong time, then they're solidifying all of those pathways. And then it's, and then it's confusing, right? As opposed to practicing one, making, getting it solid and then learning when to do it and when to do the other one. It looks from the look on your face, it looks like I lost you, but maybe that was not my no, best No, you didn't lose me at all. I think, no, the one thing I'd say is the myelination stuff. There is a, an episode in season, season one where we, we, dig more into that than we're going to dig into it right now. Um, but what I thought was interesting when you were saying is you were saying that at times you think the rep, the repetition for the beneficent for the, the repetition so that a player will learn a specific skill might be easier if you close it off. And you think sometimes if that's opened up too soon, then it can lead to too much variance in that specific technique. Yeah. Why, why would a player then, why would that variance be bad? So let's say, let's, okay, so let's say you're working with a complete beginner, right? Yep. You know, 2.0 level mm-hmm. and you're, and, and you're rallying with them, right? Now, mm-hmm. in theory, if you're rallying with them and you're sending them normal rally balls, pretty mm-hmm. much every ball they hit should have roughly the same technique. You're just rallying up the middle. It's all sure. a rally ball. So pretty much every stroke should have, once again, roughly the same technique. Of course, they're not yep. all the same, but roughly the same. Yep. But let's say they haven't developed their skills. They're not reading the ball well. They're not in position, their footwork, and so on and so forth. Yep. And so then every ball has a different contact point. And so mm-hmm. one ball, maybe they're falling to the side. One ball, they they get late and they just bunt it. One ball's a little high, they yep. finish up above their head. Mm-hmm. So those are all, you can sit there and say, oh, they solved the problem based on where the ball was. But that was suboptimal technique. They... For them to get better, they have to get into a position to hit, to stroke through the ball and hit it with proper technique. But meanwhile, while you're rallying with them, they are getting practice at all those different techniques. Mm -hmm. So let's say one of them, they hit well, a good impact point, they hit through the ball. Perfect. That's one rep for the good one. But then they, meanwhile, they also practice one that's behind them and they finish over their head and one where they're off balance and one where it's too close to them. And then, so then they're not practicing one technique, they're practicing four techniques. Right. And they're getting better at each one. And their yeah. their brain is going through the the path the neural pathway for each one. Uh-huh. And so then it makes it more it makes it more difficult for that good one to stick 
because okay. when you when when you when the brain gets the stimulus of hey the ball is coming then it has to decide okay which pathway am i going down as opposed to being trained to to recognize and to go okay this is the one this is there's a clear path if we use that analogy from yep. myelination where it's a snowy field and the footsteps and if you keep going down the same path eventually the snow gets worn down well when there's a whole bunch of different paths it's not clear which one it is yeah so i think you my my view anyway of skill development is you you train that one path so that it becomes stable and automatic in that situation right mm -hmm. it's the situation the rally situation here's a rally ball up the middle here's what the technique should look like right and then you say hey let's introduce a new situation okay here's what the technique is going to look like when it's a shorter ball and you have mm -hmm. to move up to it and hit it out of the middle and then we train that and then we've got two paths and then we train the decision making on when to when to use which one the mm -hmm. best thing i ever learned i can't believe you don't see it anywhere ever anywhere else the best thing I ever learned was Louis's formula for opening up a skill, which was one, the other, alternate, differentiate. You teach one skill until they've got it, right? They can do it seven out of 10 times. Mm -hmm. You teach the other skill until they can do it seven out of 10 times. Something that balances out the other one, something that feels a little different. You yep. alternate between the two so that they mm -hmm. can experience going in between the different feelings. Mm -hmm. And then you differentiate and you challenge the decision making between the two. Yeah. Right. And usually you only the decision is only made based on one factor. So you decide yep. based on the height of the ball or you decide based on the width of the ball. Or you decide mm -hmm. based on the speed of the ball. And then when they can do that, then you can really make it open and start to go, OK, now let's also add in the direction. Now let's also decide based on my movement or whatever it is. But that's a systematic approach to opening up the skill. One, the other alternate differentiate instead of what I think sometimes people do is they go, OK, we're going to train the one skill. We train it closed and yep. then we go all the way into an open situation. And then, and the player is not ready for that. Interesting. Interesting. Because I think in a lot of my coaching, I've done it. And I'll praise you again for the clarity in which you broke that whole, that whole thing down. But I think a lot of my coaching, I've done it um, sort of the latter way where it's like, specifically with a 2.0 beginner, it'd be something as simple as like, I don't know, let's say like I'm trying to control the height of the ball through them having consistent, um, impact points with with a strong angle of the racket right and so i'll train the crap out of that then you put it into a rally situation but i understand that in the rally situation because of their perceptual skills they won't always be able to receive the ball comfortably at their waist so there'll start to be variance in where they're receiving it but the initial point still um still is impactful to help them rally at their level right yeah so it's like and once again it's all you, you have to watch and see because if you say, okay, now we've practiced it. Now let's go rally and they yeah. can do it. Yeah. And for the most part, the technique looks good and it's a little bit outside of their comfort zone, but they can still do it. Then yeah. perfect. Then you've done your job as a coach, but it's, it's a, it's, it's looking at the number of repetitions they're getting. Mm -hmm. How many repetitions are they getting of the good thing? And yeah. how many repetitions are they getting of the bad thing? And yeah, there is a bad thing. I think that's the other thing too, is people think, well, it's an open sport. There's no such thing as bad technique. No, there is. This is where, and this is where I wouldn't say we're having a disagreement, but this is where I find the discussion interesting because I'm more on the other end of that where it's like, maybe there isn't such thing as a bad thing. Now you want it to be optimal. You always want it to be optimal, but there's a, a coach named Eddie Moran from ATI. And I was, we were shooting the shit about things, things like this. And he was working with one of his players. on like, when the ball gets above her shoulder, like what is she going to do in that situation? And that, my philosophy was like, well, why would you ever train her to receive the ball above her shoulder? He's like, well, because there's, pl there's players who are going to be so good at getting the ball there that I have to give her a, a plan um, when she's in that situation. And it's like, well, that's an interesting concept too, which I think is kind of linked to what you and I are discussing right now. You know? 
A little bit, yeah. But I think, yeah, it, it is an interesting discussion. I think... And I potentially just derailed the the momentum no. that we have. But no, no, I think no, I think it's good. But I think it's, I think in some, I think even in those uncomfortable situations, there's an idea of here's what you should be trying to do, right? I'll give you the flip side of it, right? Unless people think, less people think that I'm a I'm a model based, you know, bend your knees, follow through over the shoulder coach. Sure, sure, sure. sure. I think. If someone's uh, on the run, chase, chasing a uh, chasing a ball super far away from them, first right? mistake, don't run. And they, <laughs> yeah, why would you ever train to have the ball far away from you? And they and they try to, uh, you know, they try to step forwards and use two hands. I think that's suboptimal technique. I think on right. that situation, you should be reaching out as far as you can and flicking the wrist and trying to trying to put a racket on the ball and and pop it up and get it over the person's head or get it back deep. Yeah. Right. So like, I think in every situation, just like in that situation with Eddie, you talked about where the balls above your shoulders, I think in every situation, if you have a good enough tennis eye and you've seen enough tennis, you have an idea of roughly what should, what should this look like? Or what are the the options here? Cause the more comfortable the situation, the more options you have, but you should yeah. have roughly an idea of like, okay, this is the, this is the situation we're in. This is what the most efficient solution to this situation is going to look like. And it's mm-hmm. within a range, right? It's not going to look the exact same every time, but it's within a family of this is what it's going to look yeah. like. Yeah. And, but people who are less athletic or less experienced will not always find that solution. Right. Right. Depending on their level of, of, of athleticism, depending on their level of tennis ability, depending on the way they've been taught, they might not find that optimal solution unless you tell them, unless you work with them to say, Hey, let's develop this skill here and then put it into that situation. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um, do you think that based on the optimal and suboptimal thing, do you think that there would have been coaches or or our coaches that would have seen the way Rafa finishes on most shots and been like, hey, that's suboptimal. You should be doing it differently. Yeah, for sure. There's coaches who would have said that, but I think it's coaches who aren't really paying attention. <laughs> that's rude to say. But I think like it all depends on on what your idea. I guess it really comes down to what you define as like technical fundamentals, mm-hmm. right? Because you know, now that I think of it, maybe even more, um, that's essentially all I'm looking at. Like if they're practicing technique uh-huh. with either bad, bad timing, bad rhythm, bad balance, bad momentum, I go like, okay, then you're practicing suboptimal technique. Right. right? But I think your goal should always be to, 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 to have the best possible timing, rhythm, balance, momentum. For sure. Right. And so that going back to our beginner situation, you know, if they're in a rally situation and they're making contact up at their shoulders, then for me, that's probably suboptimal technique because what does it mean? Well, first of all, they're probably going to be too close to the ball because up at their shoulders. But second of all, they probably don't have the skill or the ability to come through it and hit mm-hmm. through it. And so for them, it's suboptimal technique because it affects their fundamentals. It affects their, uh, it affects their, their momentum. Uh, you know, you can argue about technical fundamentals, but it affects their, affects their momentum. It might affect their balance. Whereas of course, uh, you know, a higher a competitive player rallying from behind the baseline can get a ball up at their shoulders and 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 yeah. have no problems with that, but it yeah. doesn't affect their fundamentals. So I think if you go back to the to go back to your question, if you go back and look at Rafa, I think if you watched him hit and you said, okay, well, you know, he's he's hitting with good timing. He's still hitting through the ball because we know you look at him in slow motion. He hits through the ball before he finishes up above his head. He's hitting through the ball. He's on balance. Like all of those fundamentals are there. And also for the record, we cannot forget the fact that you have to start with a 
game-based approach you have to start with the fact that like was you know are you winning or losing matches if yeah. yes if not how come where are you winning your points where are you losing your points we have to start with that we're, we're, we, we can't start with just a pure look at this person's technique and do they have good fundamentals yeah for sure for sure so in your own training then when you're coaching people how often what and this is going to be tough to put a percentage on and your answer will probably be like i can't answer that question because you're zach but like what um what percentage of the time are you training your players to do things optimally? And what percentage of the time are you training them to do things that are suboptimal? Like putting them in, in situations where suboptimal things would occur. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. Um, I feel like I really shot myself in the foot with this optimal or suboptimal because I feel like someone's going to come along and 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 point out all the ways in which I'm wrong. But I... I I view it's really interesting. We're getting into the nitty gritty of it now. For <laughs> I hope I hope someone's still listening to this. But like, well, j- just to jump in real quick, we yeah. started on a uh, we started with a standardized test in soccer, and now we're here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I mean, we're 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 on the same track. We're just very deep on this track, and I don't yeah. know how many people yeah. are are staying with us. But um, I actually view tennis, mm-hmm. which maybe this is going to expose me as a as a charlatan, but like. I, I, my dream would be to like break tennis down into every possible situation yeah. and like, what are the possible responses and what do those yeah. techniques look like? That's essentially yeah. how I coach. If I'm being totally honest, that is really how I view the game. Same. I view the so game you- as like directional patterns, cross court, uh, you know, cross to cross, cross to line, line to cross, middle to out of the middle, inside out, inside in, um, yeah. uh, zone of truth, short angle. Uh, and then height patterns, medium to loopy, loopy to, you know, higher to straighter, mm-hmm. lower to the, like, I view it all as patterns. And then I have a vision in my head because I've watched enough tennis of like, okay, what does, what do the best players generally look like when they're hitting this shot? What does the footwork look like? What does the body work look like? What does the racket work look like? Yep. And they're all kind of linked, right? Mm-hmm. This pattern, you receive this ball, you hit this ball is yep. going to look like this technique or these three techniques, four techniques, depending on I'm the situation. Sure. This I'm pattern sure. is going to look like these techniques. These are the decisions. I kind of have it. It's kind of like a, like a, you know, like a, like a ready-made meal at the gas station. Like that's kind of how I view yeah. all of the tennis is like in this pattern, here's mm-hmm. the tactical, the relevant tactical stuff that you need to learn, the relevant technical stuff that you need to learn, the relevant physical, the relevant mental. That's yep. kind of how I view the whole sport. And so my goal is always to just push the limit of what they can do. It's zone of proximal development, which once again, take a shot. Cause I talk about that all the time, but like it's, it's it was this psychologist who looked and basically said like there's your sort of there's your comfort zone which is the the skills that you can do unassisted right yep. and then out and then the farther away the third ring is skills that you don't have a hope in hell of doing even with assistance and then the middle zone which he called the zone of proximal development was skills that you could do if you were assisted right. and that's where we have to spend our time we're the we're the ones assisting and so yep. like we have to spend our time getting them in that zone and 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 de- helping them develop so that eventually that zone becomes their comfort zone. Yeah. And then we push them again. And so that's always what I'm trying to do is, is build those sort of, those sort of skill sets that I just talked about. Here's the situation. Here's the technical stuff, the tactical stuff. What do you need? Okay. How can you become more proficient in this situation? Mm-hmm. Build that up and then push it and then test it a little bit. Okay. We add a little bit more movement. We test the decision-making. We make it more complex. We add that we increase the tempo, whatever it is. So I'm always pushing at the boundary, but I'm mm-hmm. very cautious to get into that zone where it's the zone where they can't do anything. Right. Right. So where if every shot they're hitting, so if, very simple stuff, right? Like, let's say we're working on the opponent changes your cross into a down the line and makes you run and you've got to run out to the down the line and let's just say neutralizing ball cross court. Mm-hmm. Right. 
if they're only doing it successfully, and let's just talk about the ball, if they're only doing it successfully three, four times out of 10, then for me, it's too hard, right? I've got to be, or let's say two, three times, maybe four is on the limit, but like, right. I'm then I, I better do something quick, to either make it easier or intervene with some feedback or some instruction or something to get them up into that zone where it's five, six, and then we can, okay, then they're getting enough success where I feel like, okay, then they're on the right side of things where they're building the habit. They're starting to feel what it feels like to do it right. They have a mental image in their head and then we can push it to six, seven, eight. And then once it, once it's at eight, then I'm like, okay, well now let's, let's make it tougher. Now let's start to push a little bit and bring it back down. But I'm, I'm really cautious of getting in that zone where they're succeeding one or two times. Yeah. Cause then, then you're, then, like I said, my theory, I go back to my, my belief, which is that then you're just practicing doing the wrong thing. Then you're just practicing the wrong adaptation to the situation. Right. So that doesn't mean I don't train defensive skills. That's the other thing oh, too. Of course not. Right. Of course not. Oh, I, I probably don't do it enough in fairness, but like I for sure still train defensive skills, but with the mindset of in this defensive situation, there is still a quote unquote optimal technique. It's mm-hmm. not going to look like step in, bend your knees, swing through the ball. Yeah. But there is still a vision of here's what I think is roughly the right, the right solution to this situation. Yeah. Um, and and if they're not able to do it more than more than three times out of 10, then I've got to make the situation easier. Yeah. So what percentage for optimal and not optimal? No, I <laughs> I think I did a good job answering that no, question. Dude, you I didn't it. back I out of that it. one. Yeah. No. All right. No, well we said. can move we can move on if you've got other uh you had other well, stuff on your agenda. I don't know. Or we can keep going if you got more questions. Well, this will uh, hopefully piggyback on on the conversation we're just having because we're talking about um, like optimal and suboptimal. In general, with decision making, I guess I guess we train decision making to make our players smarter, right? And this question might seem obvious, but maybe it's more layered. As I've been thinking about it, it's maybe more layered than than it might seem on the surface. How often with decision making do you think there's the optimal decision uh, and the less optimal decision if it's black and white in between two decisions? How often do I think it's black and white between two decisions? Uh, not how often it's black and white, but let, let's say theoretically there's a black and white decision where there's two options. So like we'll break it down simply like when to use your forehand versus when to use your backhand. Mm, okay. In that situation, do you find one decision is likely more optimal? Um. Yeah, but I think it's pretty rare that it's black and white. Yeah, well, there's a whole other black and the white conversation that you and I would need to have at some point because it's What's, it's related what? to some certification stuff. What's the podcast called again? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Rank. <laughs> yeah, but then I don't understand your question. I think I think most of the time there is one that is that is more optimal, at least yeah. at least based on the player in front of you. Yeah. But I think it's rare that it's like above 90%. For sure. Well, and it also it depends on the player in front of you, their style of play, like so, there's so many variables which again is getting mm-hmm. more open or, or getting more gray. Um but the reason I bring this up and hopefully I don't butcher this explanation as I go through it is we were training some coaches on decision-making stuff and it's kind of like an introduction to decision-making. So as a result of this introduction to decision-making, um, the decisions tended to be quite black and white with not very many um, very many layers of what could potentially change the decision. And sometimes when the player, when the coach was in the role of the player and they were being trained on their decision-making, there was a lot of balls that in a certain situation that could have been option A for the decision and it could have been option B. So it led to a conversation between, well, the coach who's in the role of the player and the coach who's in the role of the coach about like, well, now there has to be a reason why your athlete is going to do one of these two things. So 
as a result of that, there has to be one of these decisions that would be more optimal than the other one. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about this over the last couple of days. And now I think that becomes much more clear as things become more open. Like, obviously, there's a reason why you would choose to do one over the other. But then I started to think of all the possible decision making, like all the possible decisions that would happen in tennis. How often is it decision making to make your player smarter? And how often is it decision making to make your player smarter and choose the optimal choice? Does that make sense? No, you lost me at the very end there. What's the difference between making them smarter and making them choose the optimal choice? For instance, if in a decision that's like, I am going to, based on the outcome of my ball and or how my opponent looks, I might choose to recover to advance position or a neutral position or a defensive situation based on the ball that I send. Mm-hmm. So in that situation, none of those three decisions are probably optimal because they're all as equally correct based on the outcome of the ball that is sent. Right? Now, in a situation where it's like, say the decision is when to use your forehand versus when to use your backhand, between those two, assuming that a player has a stronger forehand, then it's the decision is you want them to be correct, but it would be more optimal to be correct and use your forehand. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of see that all as being part of the same family of of optimal or smart, which is like the strength of your forehand or backhand is just part of is just part of the equation. It's not a separate equation, if that makes sense. Mm. And here's here's why here's another reason why, and I'm gonna keep racking your brain about this. Here's another reason why I started to think this is because when there was decisions that were kind of like right between the two possible decisions and the two possible decisions both could have been correct there was one of the decisions was almost almost always had a less physical demand, which is why some players or coach cho- coaches chose it as being the right decision. But had the player been more chose to be more physical to seek out a ball that I believe would have been more optimal, that would have had a much greater impact on um, essentially the player winning. Mm-hmm. So I'm going through this whole rabbit hole of like, hey, we want our players to be smart. For a lot of the decisions, there's probably one that's more optimal. And then how close is a player being physical linked to seeking out the decision that's optimal? Mm-hmm. And maybe this isn't like, maybe this stuff isn't mind blowing and maybe this is just the way that it is, but it's um, for some reason I've been, it, it's made me think about things a little bit differently after this past weekend. I'm not saying oh, differently, like I would coach it any differently. I just think like categorically or based on definitions, I find it to be interesting or different. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think it's interesting. I, I, my, I only have two thoughts and I'm not, I'm not sure that they're totally connected to be honest, but like one of them, one of them is, is for sure your, you know, the way you receive the ball has an impact on the decisions available to you. Right. And so you always have to, at least as a coach, you always have to take into account, like what's the best possible shot that a player of this level could have hit in this situation. Yeah. Not my player, but a player of this level. Right. Yeah. So I'm, if I'm looking at under 10, of course, I'm not going to say, okay, that that's an attacking ball just because uh, just because my 16 year old or whatever could hit an attack on that shot. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. But if I'm looking at a, at a 16 year old or I'm looking at a 20 year old or whatever, and I'm, and, and, and this happens to me quite often when I'm tagging matches and stuff and I have to decide, well, was that an attack or should that have been an attack and stuff? Um, 
I'm looking to say like, are there players of comparable level, whether you call that UTR or, or ranking or whatever, are right. there players of a comparable level who would be able to attack on that ball? Mm-hmm. And if yes, then I go, okay, well, that was a missed opportunity for you. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and so you always have to take that into account. That's my one thought. My other thought is just going back to your situation of like coach development and one coach is, is, is coaching and the other coach is playing. I think if the coach or if the player feels that both options were equally good, then I think for the context of this drill anyway, then the coach feeding uh, hasn't done a good enough job of eliminating the other options or controlling for the other variables. Right. 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 So if I hit, if I give you a rally ball into the corner, yeah, essentially no difference or at a certain speed, essentially no difference between you going cross in line, both equally good options. Yeah. But if I feed it faster, then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, probably smarter to go cross court. Right. Yeah. But then if I stand completely on the right side of the court, I'm in outside the alley and I feed it fast, then it's actually smarter to go down the line. So you've right. got to be controlling for the variables every time to go, okay, well, here there actually is, if I manipulate all these other variables, then there is a smarter a smarter decision. I think that's actually what's making players smarter because then you get them to calculate, okay, well, this, this, and you don't want them to be thinking about it in the moment, but you train it so that it becomes automatic, right? And then they associate, well, when he's outside the court and then this, then it becomes automatic for them. You train all these different situations and then they just do it instinctively. They see where you are, they see the speed of the ball and they go, ah, oh, yeah, this is better. Ah, oh, yeah, this is better. But as a coach, you have to, calculate and you have to know what all the what all the factors are right okay well in this situation i'm standing here but it's this speed and it's this height you you have to understand what makes it easier or harder but when you control for all of those things through your feeding and your positioning and your movement then then you can make it clearer which decision is better 100 yeah well said um so my last question on this before we progress is and you and I have talked a little bit about this uh, off pod, but the way that we're introducing decision-making to a certain group of co- coaches is through black and white. Like this happens, you do this, this happens, you do that. So based on your understanding of stuff, do you really, by definition, do you think that's decision-making? If it's just two options? Yeah, but it's not, no always two. It's, not, it's not always two options. Once again, systematic. You start with one option, right? Like I said, and then you go two options and you go, okay, can you make a decision here? And the only thing I'm going to change is the speed of the ball, right? And then you go, okay, now same thing. Can you make the decision? But the only thing I'm going to change is my position, right? And then you go, okay, let's do both. So now you go from two to four and they have to decide based both on the speed of the ball and your position. And then you go, well, there's one more factor, which is the height of the ball. Let's just do that one. And you do it back to two and you just train that. And then you add it into the others. And now you're at eight or at six or whatever. But you, that's what, and so it is, of course it's shades of gray, but as you know, if you zoom into any shades of gray, there's just little individual gray. It's not, it doesn't blend together. It's just 50 different shades. Oh, 50 shades of gray. Look at that. That was, that was unintentional by the way. But like, and so that's the thing is you like, you do it systematically. You go two, three, four, five, six, seven. And, and then eventually it starts to look gray, but it's only because you've done each individual, each little bit and you've, and you've systematically introduced all of them so that then they can, they feel comfortable with all of them. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think you indirectly answered a question that I was kind of asking, but not really asking. And I'll explain more of that off camera. But that's interesting. That's, that's, that's really my like specialty. Answering, yeah. like not answering, answering the question. I like the way you broke that down. So, yeah. Thanks, man. Was that topic one or was that two? Did we cover two? <laughs> I, it kind of segued in topic two. 
Okay. Do you yeah. have Do you have more, or should I go? You go. Okay. This is an age old question. I'm surprised that we haven't yeah, addressed it on the pod yet. I don't. I think maybe we've skirted around it. But this is, I think, been a debate for years. But we might as well. Uh, we might as well do it here. Should you coach your players to be more consistent? Should that be the base of your training, the base of your philosophy? Be more consistent so they don't give away free points. Or should you coach them to be aggressive, to have weapons, because that's what they're going to need at the highest level of the game. That's the way you want them to play under pressure. That's what tennis is about, is, is doing damage to the opponent. Cool. I'd start by, I'd start by saying, number one, you coach your player to cheat, period. That's how you the starting spot, right? Close to the line, that's out. Gray zone, gray area. Um, Have to. So we've referenced this a few times on different pods, and I'll start by saying, when I was a younger, more handsome coach, I really believed it was all about developing tools and developing weapons. And I thought that was the be all end all of tennis. In if I were to do it all over again, I totally would go the complete opposite approach where I think at every level, it is so important that your player is successful and building repetition on, on winning and, or continuing to develop a psychology that the player is uh, a winner. And so I think there's a negative connotation around players at a young level who push in brackets or her just find a way to win and it might not be sexy and it might not be, and other coaches might look at it and be like, oh, well, long-term that's not going to work. But my feeling is that projection skills overall, so like coaching, training somebody to do more damage, I think is easier in the long run or, or later in a player's development than it is to coach somebody to be a great competitor and to be gritty and to put balls in the court. So my long-winded answer is I originally thought that uh, pushing and just being consistent and stuff was not the right approach. I've now completely flipped where I believe like that's the starting block for every player and and going from there. What are your thoughts? What do you think about the counter argument that, you know, under pressure, we revert to our habits. And so if you train them to be sort of grindy and put the ball in the court, then under pressure, when they have that, chance to to go for it they're not going to go for it they're going to get tight and they're just going to put it in and they're going to suffer i would say that statistically under pressure the best players in the world make less unforced errors than more unforced errors so i would hope that my players in a big moment revert to being um maybe more conservative and I'm not suggesting that that's, that's the only way because it, it, it's certainly not like overall, like regardless, we always want to make our player, we want our players in any situation to make great and optimal decisions. Right. But no, I just feel like if, if the, if reverting to being incredibly consistent and solid is a bad thing, then I'm not sure what the alternative is. Right. Yeah. It's funny on, on that note, it was interesting there. Um, I remember when the the dialogue certainly used to be, I probably still is, but the dialogue that I, that I came across quite a lot was that like under pressure, you know, the best players are clutch and they come up with these amazing shots and these amazing, yeah, amazing serves, amazing, amazing shots, amazing forehands, whatever it is. And then over time, I really, my belief really shifted uh, into what is not a, not a crazy belief that under pressure, they just play their game. They just play the same where everyone else drops. There is, as I think you maybe alluded to, there is uh, a decent amount of evidence that under pressure, the best players actually play a little more passively, right? right? 
they don't want to, but that's what makes them good is they don't, they don't give up the free points under pressure. They play a little safer, a little more passively. Whereas the others either go wild and make an unforced error, or they just get tight and they make an unforced error. Um, and the best players just play solid. There is some evidence to suggest that. So I think, I think that's interesting. Um, I've been thinking about this. I have the benefit. You, you didn't know that question was going to be posed to you, but I've been thinking about this over the last few days, which is why I brought it up here. I have been wondering if it's not possible to do both. Mm. I've been wondering if it's possible to coach your players to be the, you know, grindiest Spanish, put the ball in the court fighters in the rally phase. Mm hmm. And then develop big weapons when serving, attacking, returning second serves, and play super aggressive in those phases or yep. game situations. Yep. I wonder if that's the approach. Because, you know, the more, you know, I'm traveling a little bit now on the futures tour, 15s and 25s with a few boys. Yep. And like the more time I spend at that level, the more you see that like there's so many guys who get to a good ATP ranking. I mean, it depends on your definition of good, I guess, but like top 500 yeah. uh -huh. and they just put the ball in the court mm -hmm. and they just put the ball in the court. No huge weapons, nothing super amazing, but they just, they're super physical. They put the ball in the court. Yep. On the flip side though, you do, <laughs> you do have to be able to do some damage and put some pressure. And we know that to be sort of top hundred, you have to be able to do at least something with the ball once you step inside the baseline and you and you've got that chance. Yeah. So I wonder if it's not possible to do both and I guess my my thinking around it is I wonder if it's overrated to have weapons in the rally phase. Well, in other words, yeah. To 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 really be able to dominate someone in the rally phase, I wonder if that's overrated as opposed to saying like, okay, I'm going to get some free points on my serve. I'm going to get some attackable balls off my serve, which I'm going to clean up. I'm going to put some pressure on you on, on return of second serve. Yep. And in the rally, if you give me a gift and you give me a short ball, I'm going to pounce on it. Yep. But otherwise when we're purely in the rally, I'm just going to sit there and wait. Yep. And you're either going to, you're either going to give me a free point or every now and then you'll dominate me and that's okay, but I'm not going to give you anything for free. I wonder if that's acceptable instead of having the approach that like, okay, when we're in the rally and we're both at the baseline, we're both neutral. I've got to do something to hurt him. I wonder if that's a little bit overrated, but it's just a wonder. I, I think so. I mean, okay, we talked about this maybe the second pod, but the, how definitions are very important to both of us, but specifically as it relates to the phases of play for me, like there's a very big difference between rallying and building. And by definition of what I, I understand the definition of rallying to be, it's, it's just an, an intent to stay neutral. So as soon as a player would do anything other than try to stay neutral in a rally phase, they'd be coming out of that into a building phase or or a different phase. So like, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree that like if a player has a ball that they should be rallying on that in a big moment or any moment, they should be rallying until they've received something that would allow them to come out of the rally phase. And that's like, I think, I think you hit on the head and it's like some, some coaches might listen to that and be like, well, that's, isn't that like dead obvious and simple? And it's like, well, it's not though. It's so not. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. really it, interesting. It, yeah, it is. And, and... And it's funny because a few years ago, I think I maybe I even said it on one of the episodes of the podcast, but I don't think so. I think it was longer ago than that. But I used to say like building, I, for some reason, I prefer the word forcing, but it doesn't matter. Forcing, but yeah. yeah, like as as we say that that when your intention is to go from neutral to offense, um, to put a little pressure on them, I used to say like, I thought that was one of the most important skills, right? Because like, yeah, it's how you put pressure. It's how you how you build your point. 
hence building. And I guess what I've said, what I said two minutes ago almost counters that, which is the, the argument would be that it's not that important. The argument would be that like, if you can just be super solid, you just rally, you don't give them anything for free. Even if it's a chance to build, you just rally, no unnecessary risk, just play, play super solid. The argument is you lose on a couple chances, but you don't give them anything for free. And you're still going to get the odd moment where they yep. give you a short ball and you pounce on it. And then you just, and you get, you just, you just hope to win. You just aim to win 50% of those points. Mm-hmm. And then you collect the extra two, 3% difference from hitting big, hitting big first serves, capitalizing on those, taking the attacks. And then of course, maybe defending well, of course, scrape being a really good defender on return of first serve, bit. right? Yeah. Putting balls in, making them make mistakes, things like that. And then exactly. capitalizing on, on second serves that, you know, that would sort of be the argument. Yeah. Yeah. I think statistically, I mean, if you look at the the big four, even the the big five, if we're including Stan in that, with the ex- Federer is probably the only one of that group who might be uh, overly aggressive in big moments, where like he's really, really looking, or he's really looking to put pressure on more than the other ones based on the ball he receives. Where I feel like Novak and Rafa and Murray and even Stan, if you look statistically at Stan when he when he won slams, it seems like they're um, so content to stay in a rally phase for long periods of time in big moments, um, which I think supports the argument that that we're making. You know, definitely, definitely obvious when you watch Djokovic these days. Mm-hmm. Under pressure, he just becomes so solid. Yeah, just becomes a wall. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's interesting. Well, for the next time we chat, I do have a couple topics for you. Um, one specifically next time we chat on the difference between technique and biomechanics. Uh, That's what it was. But I don't think it's a conversation for today, but I've also want to like clear up some more thoughts and write down some more stuff on it to be able to really uh, get the most out of the, the input that you'll have on it for sure. Yeah. Send me a, a clarified question and I can think about it as well. Great. Great. Cool. Love it. Well, everybody, that was the gray zone and be good to yourself. You know what, Zach? You'd be good to yourself, too. Wow. Thanks, man. Good outro. Is that it? I guess so.